0: Welcome to the program, I'm Jeff Sheckman. Particularly in tech in the Silicon Valley, every company has its foundational myth, how its founders slayed the dragons of commerce and creativity to create an insanely great company that was gonna change the world. From the beginning, it would become the basis of the company's culture, its marketing, really its DNA. Although we don't see it happening as frequently or as contemporaneously, the same is true of nations. And perhaps, not surprisingly, No nation has done a better job of that mythology than the United States. From the ideas of Manifest Destiny to John Winthrop's Shining City on a Hill, from freedom and equality to American exceptionalism, these stories are not only foundational for Americans, but they run in the American bloodstream. So what happens when it's discovered that the myth and reality don't match up? That the emperor has no clothes? To continue the analogy, in business we've seen the likes of what happens when people like Travis Kalanick and Adam Newman are exposed. The wheels come off, the anger spreads, first internally and then outside the company, and the enterprise usually collapses or dramatically morphs. Arguably, that's what we've been living through today with the exposure and crumbling of the American myth. It explains the populist anger that brought Trump to power as well as the anger that's fueled Black Lives Matter. When the myth is stripped bare, a company or the nation must be reinvented or die. We're going to talk about these ideas today with my guest, Jared Yates Sexton. He's the author of several previous books. His political writing has appeared in the New York Times, The New Republic, Politico, and Salon. He's also the author of three collections of fiction and associate professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University. It is my pleasure to welcome Jared Yates Sexton here to talk about his newest work, American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. Jared, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. Well,
0: it's great to have you here. Is there this this problem today that this American mythology is just so ingrained in the culture of the country that, that not unlike a company, it's really impossible to change that culture even when the facts on the ground
1: demand it? Yeah, I think this is one of the defining problems of the moment. And and I appreciated the way that you you, you put that, the idea that the, this mythology is starting to come bare. And I feel like a lot of us are starting to understand that maybe our conception of America wasn't accurate or that maybe it was tainted by these mythologies or lies that we were told. And And the problem is, and I think this is part of the mythology that you were talking about, is it not only becomes ingrained in the way that we see the world, but it also becomes ingrained in the way that we see ourselves. And so what we're having right now in America is a moment where I think most of us are starting to recognize that America was built on uh, grand inequalities, white supremacist uh, and, and aristocratic concepts. While a lot of people are in angry denial about that fact and are so angry in that denial, that they're willing to go to war with other people in the country, which is unfortunately what you see in a lot of instances, both in America and around the world with previous civil wars. So we actually have a moment right now of, of reckoning. We either reconsider what America is, or we have to live within that mythology. And, and there are a lot of violent consequences to that.
0: As in businesses, for example, or corporations, sometimes that mythology, that culture can't change, and it really requires collapse and rebuilding in order to change that. Is that the precipice that we're on now as you see it?
1: Yeah, so the way that that, that countries work, and and there is a a track record of this throughout history, is that that countries that grow to a certain stature and size and, and influence in America uh you know they they're built on an idea of exceptionalism the idea that they have been chosen for some sort of uh grand crusade or grand purpose particularly by uh whether it's a christian god or a divine power and eventually when they reach this point of no return and the the country starts to fail or decline or its influence starts to decline it sort of has a moment of of a precipice, right? And on one hand, it either reconsiders what it is, and it changes the way that it interacts within itself and in the world, and decides that maybe it will start to work in alliance with other countries, or maybe it will stop pursuing things like hegemony, or it can collapse into fascistic denial, which unfortunately fascism and, and its related ideologies of totalitarianism are based around trying to eat off of uh, of countries that are starting to decline and, and create this delusional fervor that things are totally fine, you're subject of conspiracy theories and attacks from within and without. and And so then you see countries that sort of, Um, explode in sort of an impotent rage. So we're absolutely on the precipice of one or the other, but I I still maintain hope that we can figure something out that'll make a better, realer, more human future.
0: In your view, have we ever come close to this precipice before? Have we ever been at at an inflection point like the one that we're at now?
1: There have been a couple of instances in America's history where we, we have sort of teetered on the brink, Of course, the Civil War is the first one that comes to mind. And, you know, we we don't spend a lot of time really talking about the Civil War in our education or in our histories, because to examine it means we would have to look at the history of white supremacy and the fact that the Confederate States of America was a proto-fascist, you know, nightmare dystopia. But there's also another moment as well. And it was after the the bank collapse in the 1930s. And this is another thing: we we obviously have this uh, very misty eyed idea of how you know World War II happened, and we obviously went and fought fascism. But the truth is that we were linked with fascism. Um, We inspired Nazi Germany through our eugenics programs, through our immigration laws. Uh, We traded intellectuals back and forth. Um, Americans went over to Germany and helped them to construct their their Nazi apparatus. And in America, in the lead up to World War II before Pearl Harbor, um, fascism gained incredible traction in this country. And you had a lot of young men who weren't able to find work, obviously, in the Depression, who were becoming radicalized and were coming under the sway of demagogues, including Charles Lindbergh, who is still held as a major American hero, but was a front runner for the presidency and in his speeches and in his writings, were was trying to convince Americans to align with Adolf Hitler to protect white supremacy against the rising horde of, of people of color. So we've been on this precipice before. We've simply looked away from it and forgotten those lessons.
0: The other aspect of this is this failure to ever acknowledge mistakes, to, to really hold on to that mythology so tightly that there's this fear that to admit mistakes will make the whole thing crumble.
1: Absolutely. And, and the entire project is incredibly fragile. And if you actually look at things like how white supremacy works and propagates, it's actually very brittle. And the moment that mythology gets troubled, people start to, to read between the lines. And this is one of the reasons why um, Donald Trump is now, you know, at every stop talking about patriotic education, you know, making sure that our schools teach that the founding fathers were, you know, perfect in every way. They never made mistakes. White supremacy wasn't part of our founding. And the reason is, is because the truth is very obvious. If you just look at the documents, you talk to experts, you read the books, it's all right there. And it needs this veneer. It needs this illusion. But the problem is that that veneer and that that illusion are very, very fragile. And the moment that you start peeking behind them, you start realizing there's a lot of truth that has to be hidden in order for these people to continue to hold power.
0: Where else can we look in history, not of our history, but the history of other nations, to see similar kinds of constructs?
1: I I mean one of the things unfortunately is that the, the major nations of the world have have all sort of gone through these uh you know waxings and wanings uh, one thing that I think we, we need to think about is whether we want to move into the future the way that Britain did or the way of course that Germany did and And so with Britain, you see that their influence over the world and of course um, the, the British Empire was you know the most powerful empire in the world for many, many years. And when it started to decline in influence, it decided that it would take a step back, it would have a reconsideration of how it interacted with the world, it would start engaging in alliances and working with other countries. And of course, going back to the idea of Germany, after World War One, after losing um, uh, that particular war, um, fascism started to fill the void there and in Italy, and trying to say, you know what, we are exceptional. The only reason we lost the war, the only reason why we're struggling is because there are all these conspiracies against us. And that leads to these giant conspiracy theories that legitimize things like genocide. It uh, legitimizes eugenics. It legitimizes preemptive violence and oppression. And so we have a decision to make. We need to take a look at how these other powers have handled their moments of decline and and understand that we have a really big choice that we need to make. And, And that choice is coming due very soon.
0: And when we look at those other examples of those other countries that have faced similar crisis, what can we learn? What is applicable to where we are today and what our next steps might be?
1: Well, one of the bigger problems, and unfortunately, um, I I, I think that the pandemic and this current economic crisis and the spate of disasters that that go um, unanswered, I think we're understanding that right now we're failing as a nation. Um, And one of the reasons that we're failing as a nation is because so much of American power and wealth has gone towards the national security state. It's the idea that, you know, the entire world needs to operate based on American interests and, you know, the American vision for the future. And so we are in nearly every country around the world. If you actually go back and look at the so-called war on terror, we were operating in 60 plus countries you know, we were engaged in unbelievable amounts of conflict. We had trillions of dollars being moved for that purpose. We need to understand that we don't have to control what every country is doing. We don't need these massive military projects. We need to take that money, that redistributed wealth, and start putting it towards things like education and healthcare care and infrastructure, human projects that will make our lives better as opposed to trying to protect the economic and political uh, Uh, interest of of the people who control our government. So we need to, we need to step back from that and start relying on the international community and start trusting that other people aren't necessarily going to do evil just because they're not doing what we want them to do.
0: In your view, is that even possible? Is the culture of what we were talking about at the outset here just so ingrained that it can't be changed?
1: I, I would say that it is possible, it's it's incredibly difficult. Um, and, and part of the reason it's difficult is because a lot of these mythologies that we're talking about, um, history that isn't real, is is what's taught in our schools. I mean, if you actually go into the curricula of, of a lot of these schools, and particularly in you know red states and in the South, you see that history and, and the way that America works is taught in a very specific way to give people a reality in order for this to function. But I do think in recent years, and I think Black Lives Matter showed us this with the protest, is that American opinion and and the reality we live in is very malleable. And when you start having conversations about inequality and the, the truth of history, that illusion starts to lift. And I do believe that more Americans than ever are ready to have these conversations because I think they're very frustrated with our politics and they're very frustrated with the inequality. So I I think there is a possibility, but there is a lot of work to be done.
0: One of the other problems is is really the institutional structure of our government. You know, there's a lot of talk and there has been during this presidency that the institutions are what was gonna save us, the institutions needed to hold. In fact, in many cases, it's those very institutions that are reinforcing the worst of this.
1: Absolutely. And if you actually go back through American history, what you find is that from the very founding, and this is, unfortunately, it's in the notes of James Madison, who was the main architect of the Constitution. It's all there in black and white if you read it which is that the way that our country was structured was intentionally to uh, protect the wealthy and powerful and white supremacist institutions while making sure that the common people were controlled. The founding fathers didn't trust common people, people who weren't wealthy and powerful. And so they created a system and a structure that uh, intentionally disadvantaged them and kept them from anywhere, kept them from getting anywhere near the, the levers of power. So what we're actually watching right now is a lot of our government is working the way it is supposed to work. And we have a president who, unfortunately, has nowhere near the patriotism or duty that I think the founding fathers expected a man of wealth and power to have. So they've been corroded and perverted, and they've been used as a means of protecting this self-interested, self-dealing government.
0: And does it require more anger, more violence in order to make these changes, do you
1: think? Is that what history tells us? History tells us it, it's going to take anger. The, the violence is a different thing altogether. And, and what American history actually shows us is that moments of change aren't predicated on violence. Violence actually creates the uh, firewall against change. And what you actually see is that when the power structure is challenged, the state uh, it replies with violence. So what we've actually seen is that there are these pendulum moments in American history where there are moments where Americans feel like they have no power, they have no agency, the government is bought and sold by the wealthy and corporations, and then they remember that they have agency and that through solidarity and organization, mass protest, labor unions, uh, civic community groups, that they start realizing that when they are involved in politics, things can change in a massive way. So the question now is whether or not Americans will remember that they have power and agency or will continue to treat politics like a spectacle, something that we watch on television.
0: There's also the overlay of information to all of this, that, that, that this is all happening in a world that is always on 24-7 with, you know, and we, we've all had the conversations about social media, the impact of that, etc. But those kind of divisions, this kind of anger, this stuff that we've been talking about, overlaid with the information environment we have today, takes all the problems we've been talking about and puts them on steroids.
1: Absolutely, it does. And it also has a a problematic effect of making it to where we can't necessarily focus on anything for uh, very long, because the next piece of information comes out. And if you actually go back, and I wrote about this in American Rule, if you go back and look at the history of technology, and particularly uh, the invention of the internet, A lot of people thought that the internet was going to be a technological utopia that would lead to more organization, more free speech, and would radically change the world. The problem is that the internet was corrupted by capitalistic interest, and they figured out that they could make more money by making people addicted to it, overwhelmed by it, and by throwing all this misinformation around and not really caring about democracy. And in effect, it has broken our political system and all but broken our reality. So One of the things that we have to do is remember, again, the initial promise of the Internet, that that utopic vision, the idea it might make uh, society better. And, you know, whether it's through regulation or major sea change, we need to get back to the point where it's a force for good and information and democracy as opposed to something that destroys democracy.
0: Of course, it's easy to say how that happens is a whole other issue, obviously.
1: Oh, for sure. But again, history gives us a guide. Um, this moment that we're in right now, really, uh, in an unsettling way, is very reminiscent of what happened at the turn of the 20th century with the robber barons and the Gilded Age, where you had all of these technological companies. And at that time, it was about telegraphs and railroads and, and, and you know oil. And, and all these companies started to gain such control and such power that they actually took over our politics. They took over our daily lives. They made sure, of course, that children were working in factories. That people, you know, never got any relief from their jobs. They were paid practically nothing, and a vast system of inequality grew. But again, we look back at that time period, and all of a sudden, Americans grew tired of it, and they they got together. They, uh, you know, they organized. They they acted through solidarity, and they made America change. They made uh, the way that our businesses work and those corporations function completely change. And so if we realize that we can affect these things, I think that we could be looking at a future where big tech, massive international corporations could be brought to act within people's best interests. But it's going to take, again, just a ton of organization and a ton of work.
0: Talk about it from the point of view of both generational change and demographic change
1: for sure. And, and this is one of those things in um, and, and America, and you, you go back throughout history, and you actually see that we've continually had um, these generational moments where one generation pushes against another. And of course, where demographics have changed. Right now, we're talking about people of color becoming an ascending demographic group, right? We're talking about the end of a white majority, which is one of the reasons why we're in such a moment of tumult, and why there is rising fascism in this country. But if you actually go back to past immigration moments and demographic changes, you see that there have always been these perils, right? For a while, it was Italian immigrants, it was Irish immigrants. And then eventually what ended up happening after moments of of terrible upheaval and violence and immigration acts that were xenophobic and racist in nature, you ended up seeing that eventually the idea of what a white person it ended up growing and encompassing the, the Irish and the Italian, and they were brought into the majority. So right now, this is one of those moments of tumult. We, we don't exactly know where we're going or what we're becoming, but we've always had these moments accompanied with these fascistic movements. And so now we have to have a question, which is, do we assimilate? Do we become uh, the, the so called mythical melting pot? Do we allow pluralism to, to take hold and make this country better? Or do we embrace those fascistic elements that have always sort of been at the fringe of society?
0: Of course, all this is happening to us not in a vacuum. There's a lot of global change going on as well, that clearly has an impact on what happens here.
1: Absolutely. And, 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 you know, this is a, a really upsetting and disturbing trend. But the white supremacist, white terrorism problem that we have in America right now, and I would argue rising fascism in America, is mirrored in other countries, particularly in, in Western countries. You you have a lot of this in Greece, a lot of this in Britain, uh and, and you know, this has actually taken hold and taken power in Russia. What you actually see is you you see a lot of, of white organizations, white terrorist organizations and nostalgic organizations. I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin has promised to bring back the glories of the Soviet Union. And in many ways, what's playing out in America right now has been playing out in countries all around the world. We have more dictators right now than we have had since the 20th century. And if you actually look at this thing, a lot of them are in communication with each other. A lot of them share information, radicalization tips. Uh, We've actually seen here in America, we have terrorist organizations that have been learning from things like ISIS and Al-Qaeda on how to radicalize. And so we're at this moment of change. The question is what that change will be and whether those people will determine the change or if the people will determine the change.
0: And of course, fear is such a driving force because the one thing human beings don't do well is really big change
1: oh, absolutely it's a terrifying thing. Um, you know, I was actually talking with uh, Mary Trump. I was interviewing her the other day uh, on on my podcast, and we were having a conversation about what the future holds and and right now, particularly, you know it's really hard to imagine whether or not Donald Trump or Zasol loss if he leaves. It's kind of hard to envision the future. But the problem is that we have to start thinking about the future. We have to start thinking about large system system change Because other people are fighting for that change. And the visions for the future that we have right now are either fascistic, which are about rewinding the clock and taking back individual rights. Or, of course, you have big tech, where a lot of the people who, um, you know, are now worth, you know, billions upon billions of dollars want to get away from the laws and, and not have, you know, oversight whatsoever. We have some people who want to, you know, uh, go to Mars, where they're not going to have any laws that, you know, are, are overseeing them. But we have to come up with a better vision. That That's the, the the sad truth about this, is as long as we're facing this and we're afraid of it and we're afraid of Coming up with an idea of what the future will look like, we're allowing malevolent, uh, self-dealing actors to make up that future. One
0: of the things that's come of all this, though, and we're seeing this play out in, in, electorally right now, is this sense of people being exhausted, that, that replacing one set of, of gigantic problems with another is, is not necessarily what people seem to want. They want a rest or some kind of interregnum in between.
1: Oh, I know I'm exhausted. I've been aging in dog years since then Trump took over <laughs> as president. And, and, and you know, the, the, the thing about it is uh, politics right now are exhausting and they're exhausting for a purpose. Um, you make a lot of money off of anxiety. I'm, I'm talking about the media. I'm talking about politicians. They fundraise. They have incredible ratings, retweets, clicks, likes, eyes, all of that. The system that we have right now is based off of a dysfunctional life. It's based off of constantly being terrified and being petrified at what the future might have. And therefore, you're addicted to the news, you're addicted to the TV, your phone, all of that stuff. And nothing, by the way, embodies that more than Donald Trump. I think we need to get back to the point where politics is something that we we play a part in. We're going to our city council meetings. We're running for state senate where normal people are doing those things and engaging in in it as part of their civic duty. But right now it's treated as spectacle. And because it's spectacle, it's a television show. It's something to watch. It's something to react to. But we need to get back to the point where it's actually about representation versus entertainment or terror.
0: Jared Yates Sexton, his book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. Jared, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Hey, thank you.